Hi, I'm Bernard Leong and you may know me as the executive who thinks deeply about the blockchain space and in my spare time, I want to understand how regulation on blockchain and cryptocurrencies are changing across Asia-Pacific, with China included. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia, co-produced by myself and Carol In. And today, I have Joyce Young, founder of Global Coin Research. Welcome, Joyce, and it's great to have you here again on the podcast. Hi, Bernard. It's great to be back. Hasn't been too long since we spoke about Binance just a few months ago. I think the Binance conversation has been great and the feedback coming from the community, even from my own audience, have been awesome. So I want to ask you, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Oh, that's so great to hear. I'm so happy to learn that your audience likes what I'm saying and what we provide here at Global Coin Research. So since we spoke last time, it hasn't been too long, but it really feels like years in the crypto kind of age because so many things happen all around the globe. And despite the fact that we're in a bear market, things have been moving along at a pretty rapid pace. So on our side at Global Coin Research, we've been focusing on providing quality information for our tens of thousands of readers on the crypto Asia scene, as we always have done. And as you may have saw, Bitcoin prices have surpassed the $5,000 mark. And on a macro level, we see China's economic policies actually this year gradually reverting back to a risk-on model. So I think this will drive ripple effects to the rest of Asia, which will certainly be bolstering the crypto market locally in Asia, as well as the rest of the world. We also offered two really well-received conference calls in the last month for our subscribers, one with MakerDAO China, which is a stablecoin project, and one with Arthur Hayes, who's the CEO of BitMEX which is the largest derivatives exchange in crypto. And this is in joint collaboration with information. So I was really happy when Arthur, who grew up in the States, basically said that Asia is the center of crypto because that means we are doing something right as a platform. And you traveled to Thailand, right, as well? Yes, yes, I did travel to Thailand. I was there for a very interesting conference around security token offerings that was launched by a company based out of New York, who saw the opportunities in STOs in Thailand, which I would love to talk about more later down in this conversation. And what I also discovered is that there has been a lot of asks from our community, from Global Coin Research and the general crypto community about how to go about approaching Asia. Essentially, you know, if I go to Asia, where do I go to find these crypto communities? There are developer communities and blockchain communities all around Asia, in Singapore, in Hong Kong, in China, but how do we find them? So what we're doing now in Global Coin Research is actually we're looking to literally put out a travel guidebook into Asia crypto for anyone who's interested in traveling to Asia and learning about these communities. Generally, you know, as you've seen previously in the open source world, everyone kind of has been very open about sharing their technology and their learnings and their best practices. And we see that in crypto as well. So what we're doing now is releasing this guidebook to the community and I'll be promoting that in the next few months at Consensus, which is in New York, the largest crypto conference in North America, happening in May, as well as in Croatia in July, uh, Zcon, which is the largest privacy coin conference. So those are definitely exciting things coming up. 
And I'm pretty sure that having your travel guide as a separate episode will be really great for the audience because I think there's a lot of people in the US, Europe who will be very curious about Asia and really don't know how to approach. And I think that travel guide, I'll probably put a link to the show notes so that they can also go to your site and download it later. But coming back, I want to talk to you on the main subject of the day, which is about cryptocurrency and blockchain regulation across Asia Pacific. And I think it's really great that we have a back and forth with some thinking about the questions and how to position this topic, which I think is of interest to many people across the world globally. So let's start off from taking a global perspective. With all the ICOs faltering, and I think most cryptocurrency and blockchain companies are still trying to find market product fit. And of course, with the recent surge of Bitcoin prices, truth be told, disclaimer, I'm also owner of Bitcoin. How are... U.S. and European regulators thinking about the sector. Yeah, so just to give folks a quick background, in the last year up until now, I think U.S. regulators have been working on clarifying their stance on blockchain-based tokens and securities laws. And one of the largest blockers of the crypto development and activity in the U.S. has really been the vagueness or the generally lack of clarity from the Securities and Exchange Commission, aka the SEC. Um, so honestly, but, you know, I think it would be super impressive for any regulator to catch up on an industry that's moving as fast and is as volatile as crypto. And then these regulators would have to stay ahead of the game by releasing their views on the space and essentially forecasting and kind of showing knowledge of what they believe the industry will turn out to be like. So I think a lot of regulators have a lot of conflict of not wanting to contain and limit the developments and progress that's happening in the space, but while also taking out the bad factors. So generally, most regulators now are reactive and have only put out statements once they see cryptocurrencies, you know, growing some kind of presence in the country and are, you know, malevolent for the citizens or such. So for the longest time, I think the SEC has argued in favor of self-regulations. But one positive that came out recently was that the SEC chairman, Jay Clayton, confirmed that Ethereum and cryptocurrencies like it aren't securities under U.S. law. So that's a very big positive because they're actually saying that directly and making a statement and categorizing these tokens. And just recently, the SEC also published a framework to determine whether or not a digital asset is deemed a security. So now that we have a framework it's a lot easier for you to, you know, look at the framework and use it as a reference to determine whether your company is issuing a token that would be deemed a security. So I think it should be a lot easier for folks to enter and operate in this space. But, you know, generally these things take time and the SEC is still going over many projects and the tokens on a case-by-case basis. One exciting thing that folks were very looking forward to was the decision on Bitcoin ETF launched by the Chicago Board Options Exchange. So that was supposed to come out soon, but the SEC decided to extend its deadline to make the decision on whether to allow the Bitcoin ETF to exist. So there's still a lot of potential for these interesting financial products to come out in the U.S., but I think you know it'll still take at least another quarter or two. And that's only on the U.S. side. I have some more on the European side. Yeah. I'm very curious to hear about the European regulators. So where are they now, actually? Yeah, so the European regulators are, I would say, more passive than the rest of the regions in the US and in Asia. 
most European countries have not issued any regulations that deals with cryptocurrencies, and I suspect they're looking to the U.S. for some guidance. And generally, these regulators are showing no attitudes, and if any, it's a slight deviation from being neutral. So some would support the space but are staying on the sidelines and make claims that blockchain is interesting, while some are very vocal but are cautioning against it because they are worried about the potential negative impacts it brings to our citizens. And they will claim that cryptocurrency purchases are not backed by any of the guarantees or safeguards from the current regulations. I think the only exception to that would be Malta in the EU, which has allowed the setup of multiple large crypto exchanges, such as Binance and OKX, and support via on and off ramps. This is super rare, and Malta was one of really one of the first entrance regulators who you know kind of welcomed crypto with an open arms. So it's super interesting. But so far, they've done pretty well, and I think that's generated a pretty good amount of tax returns for them as well. There's a reason why I started the U.S. and European regulation because I think if you were to walk back maybe two three decades, anything with innovation. With new things coming out, is typically from the West. However, these days I think that this is actually changing and it's coming a lot more from Asia. So I'm going to ask you now in the Asia side. We often hear that Asia is the most welcome when it comes to blockchain and cryptocurrency. I guess specifically three countries will come of mind: Korea, Japan, and Singapore, and sometimes maybe even Hong Kong as well. I will separate Hong Kong out of China for a while. Is this perception true, or are there really nuances with the region which people do not know about? Maybe there's other countries that may be much more interesting, and we just totally have not heard about them in the conversation. Yes, but I think what you mentioned before that historically, you know, the Western Hemisphere has been leading in providing regulations or implementing more progressive actions around these things. We now see Asia being the kind of the early adopters into this industry, and I think they are welcoming of the industry, and that's one way to look at it. But another way to look at it is that they're also risk taking. I think by adopting something new, many of these countries are taking a lot of risk and somewhat paying for it. So I agree with you that Japan and Korea were one of the first countries to start permitting cryptocurrency exchanges. To operate and trading very early on, you know, with Mt. Gox, which I'm sure you know, even outsiders of crypto have heard of Mt. Gox that started in 2010, and that was in Japan. And Bitthumb is Korea's largest exchange that started in 2013. They had to deal with damages and consequences of being early adopters in this space, and they meaning you know the exchanges as well as the regulators themselves, right? So. For example, Mt. Gox handled about seventy percent of trading during this time, but got hacked multiple times during its operations, and then applied for bankruptcy, and it was unable to return money to its customers, which of many were Japanese citizens. And Bitum also reportedly got hacked the third time now at the beginning of this year. So by allowing these exchanges to operate, the regulators also had its citizens directly exposed to these risks. And so, in the last two years, I'm seeing that you know, first Japan and more recently Korea actually becoming more conservative towards crypto trading, and increasingly more aggressive in regulating the crypto exchanges by introducing you know, know your customer and anti-money laundering rules. So it feels like they opened the Pandora box and let out all the you know the demons, and now they're trying to patch up the box. 
to make sure that it doesn't hurt more people. So the Japanese regulators have been super reluctant about granting licenses to crypto exchanges now. They only granted one in the past year, and that's only to a local Japanese exchange. You know, the U.S. company Coinbase has been talking about opening up a Japan office to kind of tap the Asian market, but has been waiting for this license for more than a year. And for Korea, what we're seeing now is that these local exchanges that were based out of Korea are moving out of Korea and opening offices elsewhere in the rest of Asia, like Philippines, like Indonesia and Singapore, because of the increasing scrutiny on these operations by the regulators locally. So the regulators are not so welcoming of exchanges anymore, and it's increasingly difficult for new entrants to enter. And I think, you know, the opposite of that is China, as an example of someone who did not take this risk of, you know, welcoming cryptocurrencies, right? They banned exchanges really early on when they first started out. And to be fair, honestly, I think out of all the Asian countries, Chinese regulators probably know the most and have the most experience with retail markets. Because they just witnessed the largest retail market, you know, in trading develop in the last decade, which is China's Asian market. So they decided essentially to not take on this risk and ban the cryptocurrency exchanges outright. I think a lot of times what the current cryptocurrency trading situation reminds me of is the early days and maybe even now of the Asian market in China. You know, when I was working for a Chinese bank and seeing the, the amount of retail folks who are in there and the amount of volatility that's created in the space. So these exchanges are not allowed to have retail trading operate in China, but they still have teams and employees there. And many exchanges are actually based out of Beijing, where central regulators are. So generally, I think, you know, the space is such a young space. There are still late entrances to cryptocurrency in various parts of Asia. And we see opportunities for exchanges now arising in Hong Kong, Singapore, Thailand, and Indonesia. You know, each of them have very different approaches. You know, for example, like how you separated out Hong Kong, they have created financial sandboxes to allow these exchanges to exist. And they're monitoring how these exchanges perform in a very contained way. So I think that's one approach. And Thailand has also essentially approved exchanges on a case-by-case scenario, but they're moving at a faster pace, way faster than Japan. So, I mean, those countries, I think, are just coming in later. And many of these exchanges may get hacked too. So we still have to see. But that's kind of the landscape on the exchange side, which, you know, I think has been kind of the focus for Asia. How about blockchain as a technology itself? How are the regulators looking at it in the region as well? Are there also nuances within the region that people do not know about? I think the nuances are more about, you know, the crypto sub-industries and where they could potentially flourish. For example, Blockchain gaming is very much welcomed in Japan and Korea. You know, Japan has a cryptocurrency gaming TV show, and Korea has fostered many accelerators that are, and they believe that, you know, gaming is a big focus for blockchain. While I don't see as much of that, you know, subsector focus in other countries. And I think overall, the sentiment around blockchain technology has generally been welcomed. If you look at China, for example, uh, we see companies like Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu all have their own blockchain teams and they are huge teams. So a huge in the sense of, you know, for example, Tencent has about over, you know, I think 100 people working on blockchain projects. And those guys have started that since early 2013, 14. 
So they definitely have the foresight to see the value of blockchain technology. And I think folks generally have a pretty welcome sentiment around that. So what are the most common misconceptions about cryptocurrency and blockchain regulation globally or even specifically in Asia? Yeah, I think there are so many different kinds of misconceptions. Our platform essentially is to focus on clarifying those misconceptions about Asia, you know, as global coin research to provide that information gap. I think for one, quality media focusing on Asia is way far few in between. And occasionally you'll read on Twitter about what's happening in Asia, but no one writes extensively about Asia crypto in English like you know, what we do, or, you know, I haven't seen that many folks doing that really, honestly. And it's a lot to learn, honestly, given the trends and where we're going with blockchain. I think any tech journalist who now understands crypto will be quite differentiated. And if you understand a foreign region and its policies, they'll be even more valued because crypto is something that touches so many different fields and different regions and locales, right? So, I mean, I was just very lucky and had the privilege of growing up in China and then receiving a good education in the U.S. and then getting exposed to working for a Chinese company and learning how that's like. And then, honestly, I married a Singaporean guy who was able to teach me a lot about Southeast Asia. So I was able to get all the contacts about Asia that I'm able to form today, and I can't miss any of those pieces. So continuing that line of thought, I think misconceptions stem from poor or lack of information you know, or data. Outsiders and English speakers only see that Asia market is full of speculation and dodgy ICOs because that's the extent of media that reaches the Western hemisphere. But they haven't seen any of the interesting, hardworking projects that's actually building real blockchain technology and, you know, let alone reporting extensively about them. Right. And another misconception or lack of knowledge, I think, comes from how regulators interact with projects in practice in such a nascent field. And they vary a lot by country. So one glaring example is this cryptocurrency ranking that many media companies report on. So that supposedly is a quarterly ranking by the Chinese government on all the cryptocurrency coins. And, you know, in the top 10 rankings, supposedly the regulators are ranking EOS and NEO as, you know, the best coins that they deem to be suitable for adoption and implementation. But if you actually dig into the background of the publisher of this ranking, it's a private consultancy that's affiliated with the regulators, but does not actually represent them. And you need to really dig deeper into these investigations to uncover that these rankings are not actually objective, but everyone reports on it. And people claim that, you know, this is what China believes, right? So it's a very broad stroke based on, you know, just misinformation and lack of understanding how a lot of these entities work and where these data sources are coming from. I think one differentiated group that has been generally showing very transparent regulations and having kind of a more of a dialogue with folks in the industry is the Monetary Authority of Singapore, as well as the Hong Kong Monetary Authority. They have done good jobs with showing to be on top of things. At least, you know, in Singapore, they're very vocal and they're transparent about, you know, here's what we think and here's how we view and we'll classify these tokens if you come into our country. While... You know, in Hong Kong, the regulators are more like, you should be proactive about reaching out to us. We will not strictly regulate you, but you should communicate with us so that we know what you're doing and anything goes wrong, you let us know. You know, they have a pretty hands-off attitude. I think that also worked out pretty well. Just a follow-up question here. 
I think one interesting thing you mentioned Hong Kong Monetary Authority and the Monetary Authority of Singapore being very open and very vocal. It's also partially because both whether it's Hong Kong or Singapore, they're financial capital. And hence, the regulators have actually dealt with much more complex situations. And hence, I think when they looked at something like crypto, they have a much more quick response as versus maybe other countries where there is no financial capital type of services or hub that's being existent within them. Yes, I think that's partially for sure because you have the best talent in finance probably you know, concentrated in Hong Kong and Singapore who are the financial hubs and have been financial hubs in Asia for, for decades. At the same time, I think by providing more transparent and being ahead of everyone else amongst the regulators in Asia, they are able to attract quality companies and capital a lot faster and more efficiently than you know, their competing countries. Essentially, you know, cryptocurrency brings in, I would say, a pretty diverse group of people, but it's also very progressive in its technology and the implications that you could potentially have on you know, financial technology. And I think by being able to get exposure to those things first, Hong Kong and Singapore will benefit and be able to take that for their own and adopt that for their own local financial ecosystem. So I'm very curious to know, we have discussed this previously, that blockchain and cryptocurrency exchanges are pretty much intertwined for the rest of Asia, whereas in China, it's broken into two separate parts. I mean, there's the blockchain applications, which the Chinese government really love to promote the technology. And then there is the ban of ICOs and crypto exchanges. So I want to zoom into much more where the companies are. How does it work for companies who are trying to position themselves in the region? Yeah, I think China is super interesting. My take is that whether you're a project or an exchange, going to China or building in China, as long as you continue to have a healthy dialogue with the local regulators and keep them posted on what you're doing, you will not get in trouble. The Chinese regulators are very pro-blockchain technology, and they have publicly listed cloud-based blockchain data centers and generally just blockchain technology overall as endorsed industries. And this even applies to exchanges and many exchanges still have their full teams, you know, operating out of China and even working with the local governments to push forward some of the local and provincial agenda items around blockchain and, you know, China's digital currency message, which many folks who I've spoken to in China says that they're actively investigating into it. And I think, you know, overall understanding where these regulators come from and how they're thinking about cryptocurrency is very important for anyone going to any country in Asia. So China, for example, is primarily afraid of people getting scammed and citizens creating civil unrest. So if you understand that underlying purpose and kind of what they're trying to achieve, you'll see that their crypto bans are just actually efforts to drive out the bad actors. You know, they would try to eliminate the ICO marketing and messaging around coins because they don't want people to get scammed. But I think China generally is a pretty hard place to crack for crypto. You have to be a local or have a really close local connection to go to market there and have a dialogue with the regulators there. Well, you know, they're not really that welcoming of foreign companies. And I think this is why you historically have seen many foreign public companies going to China with a joint venture of some sort, right? It's not easy to just go on your own and be like, I'm here and I'm going to, you know, make changes and get customers. But, you know, going back to what we were talking about, Hong Kong, Singapore, those folks are generally more transparent and more approachable. So those two cities are what I encourage folks to go to when first exploring the Asia crypto scene or thinking about going to market there. 
because you'll see a good melting pot of crypto people from North Asia and Southeast Asia, respectively. And depending on the crypto sub-industry that your project and company is in, which I mentioned before, like for example, if you're in gaming and you go to Japan or Korea, if you're in supply chain, you probably could go to China, you know, supply chain focused crypto company, and you could go to Korea. And you could zoom into a specific industry based on the regulatory attitude towards that sub-industry. It makes me think that even the way how blockchain applications and cryptocurrencies are moving in Asia is actually very tied to that particular country's core competency. I mean, you mentioned earlier that Japan started crypto gaming. Japan itself is the gaming capital of the world, right? Mm-hmm. And then when you think about Korea, you think about supply chain, similar to China as well, being into the supply chain, whereas Singapore and Hong Kong is very specifically into the financial applications of blockchain. Do you see the core competency of the country actually is directly related to what kind of blockchain applications or communities that actually been built up within that particular country itself across Asia Pacific? Yes, I think it's definitely happening. And I think the companies who are going to market in Asia find that they could find better audiences. And it's a two-way street, right? So then folks who are investing in blockchain from China, Korea, and Japan are also investing in different things, you know, Japan and Korea are looking to invest into blockchain games outside of their countries in U.S. So you see two-way street where, you know, yeah, these traditional industries where they already excel that really helps them differentiate and allows the existing projects to find audiences in their local regions. I'm going to hazard a guess that soon, I think Tencent is going to come up with their own crypto gaming app. So given that they took Line and Talk as inspiration for WeChat, but I want to go back into the conversation again. Do you find that within the region splitting China and the rest of Asia, is there a spectrum to where the financial regulators are looking at cryptocurrency and blockchain from favorable to not favorable? Yes. In our travel guide, we released kind of a comparison analysis highlighting the different countries and their level of regulatory friendliness towards crypto. So we encourage folks to check that out on our website. I think generally the most favorable folks are coming from Southeast Asia, namely Thailand, Singapore, and Indonesia. I think Thailand most recently has been the most favorable country towards crypto. They remind me of Japan in the early days with exchanges, security token offerings being endorsed, along with you know corporates conducting ICOs and exploring blockchain use cases. I think Thailand is interesting because they see crypto as a strategic opportunity to really attract attention and capital into the country where there historically hasn't been a strength. But so it's like a high risk, high reward strategy for them. Singapore is allowing Binance to operate out of there starting in April, which I think is certainly a favorable thing for the industry overall and also kind of speaks to the general attitude from the regulators. I think exchanges in Asia from countries like Korea, where I mentioned, has seen increasingly scrutiny on the exchange front are moving to Indonesia now, which I think is an interesting and burgeoning you know, crypto ecosystem. But Indonesia is very spread out. So we'll have to see kind of how those exchanges fare there. And then after that, it will be you know, Hong Kong, which generally has a pretty open attitude towards exchanges and then kind of encourages dialogues, maybe we mentioned. And then it'd be Korea, Japan, and uh, China last. I'm very curious to know this. What are the key legislation in different countries which are the most interesting and exciting if you're dabbled in cryptocurrency and blockchain? Yeah, I think, you know, for the US, it's definitely the Bitcoin ETF, which really would set up entity that encourages more institutional ownership. 
and generally over lift the space. And you know, many countries are still looking to the U.S. for guidelines on cryptocurrencies. And in China, I think right now there is a draft proposal from China's National Development and Reform Commission around banning mining, which potentially could be a very big decision. But it won't be finalized and confirmed for a few quarters, as right now it's still a draft. But the proposal essentially is looking to eliminate mining along with hundreds of other industries, or you know, it's a guideline, so it's not necessarily enforcement. But it's certainly an attitude expressed by the regulators that they're not as welcoming of mining as they probably did before. And you know, given that Bitmain's IPO lapsed in the last month, along with Canaan's. Which was the second largest mining company in Asia. I'm sensing that mining in general is kind of slowly declining in variability. So I think that's something that's worth looking out for because really, you know, mining is really sets the foundation of cryptocurrencies, especially those that have proof of work as their consistent algorithm. And China, you know, makes up for previously over fifty percent of the mining activity. There are generally a lot of miners due to cheap electricity that's provided there, so that's something definitely worth noting for. Do you think the mining activity will actually shift into the rest of Asia? There are a lot of countries in the region who might be interested. I mean, even India might become a, a mining capital at some point. Yeah, that's interesting. I think generally, folks moving into countries like Canada and the U.S. actually for mining. And it's mostly driven by you know electricity prices. I've seen some Japanese mining companies shut down or moving their mining farms to China just because China has the cheapest electricity. But given regulatory attitude towards mining overall, setting up mining shops is not the easiest thing to do. You know, just anywhere in the world. So people have talked about Iran, but that's actually not that easy to set up there. So, with the hype cycle of ICOs now in almost dwindling mode, how are Asia governments looking at companies doing ICOs, or are they also shifting towards looking at tokens as securities, or maybe something else? Yeah, most countries are not endorsing ICOs at the moment, and they are kind of hesitating. Korea, I know, is hesitating about opening up ICOs again. So now exchanges are actually doing their own equivalent of the initial coin offering on their own platform. And they dub it initial exchange offerings, which is essentially a small version or a smaller scale version of ICOs, where existing company issues about you know five to ten percent of tokens and raises about five to ten million dollars. So that kind of helps companies get some traction, raise some money, but it's nowhere near the kind of an ICO level that we saw you know in 2017. And countries like Thailand, though, is actively promoting ICOs, and they're you know the regulars are reviewing the ICO companies there. But that's probably more of an exception to the rule. And I think generally folks have been pretty cautious about that now. So, if I'm a part of an executive leadership of a crypto or blockchain company today, what would I be most worried about from the regulators? I think I would be worried about the uncertainty and the kind of unpredictability. Of the regulators, you know, many countries are indirectly unwelcoming in the sense that they're not very communicative with outside companies and outsiders in general. So you have to talk to a local crypto guy essentially to understand how to navigate the crypto operations there and on a continuous basis, right? And this is something that I think generally crypto regulators are also realizing that they have to deal with, which is being able to communicate what they're thinking about a space as fast as you know crypto. To the folks around them, 
not only just locally, but on an international level. And this is where I see, you know, Hong Kong and Singapore also having that advantage because generally folks speak English and it makes it a lot easier for outside communication. And also, I think leaders should worry about, you know, identifying opportunities in these countries that are, you know, experiencing this crypto phase. Many regulators are very fast to act when they see opportunities arise. So they may die very quickly as a business strategy. So, for example, the Chinese regulators are very quick to act. So when the ICOs died out mid last year, the security token offerings became a thing very quickly. And then the Chinese regulators immediately came out with a statement about prohibiting STO activities. So that's something I think, you know, just being able to stay agile and keep an eye out on all the different things that are going on in the regulatory space around different regions, it would be very important in this space. And I think this is probably something we will have to continue to watch. And I probably have to get you back to talk about the travel guide because I really want to know who and who's who is, even in my hometown, who are the people I should talk to. So Joyce, many thanks for coming on the show. But of course, in closing, I have to ask you two questions. My first question is, can you recommend a book, movie, podcast, or anything that has made an impact to your work and personal life recently? Yeah, I love this question. And it kind of forces me to think about how many books I've read and how many books I should be reading. I've been reading too much crypto stuff lately. So when I'm not doing that, I actually am reading the autobiography of Lee Kuan Yew, which is a Singapore story. I think, you know, it's obviously speaks of a time that's very early on of Singapore. And it's super fascinating to me because, you know, since we're breaking grounds in, in different kinds of industries, it's great to have some kind of role model to look forward to and learn from. Have you read the second book, the one that is from the third world to first? No, I don't think so. Oh, I think you should read that one. That's actually apparently the Bible of most of my African friends. Oh, okay, cool. Whenever I tell them I'm a Singaporean, they always tell me about that book. That is the one where Lee Kuan Yew actually explained how they brought manufacturing, built the economy, and took a couple of risks and turned Singapore to what it is today. So it's actually the how-to book. What's it called again? From the Third World to First. Got it. Yeah, that's great. I will do that one. I will definitely read that one. So... Last question, how do my audience find you? Folks can find me at Joyce in NYC. That's my Twitter handle. And if you are ever in New York, do hit me up on Twitter or email me. We're also at globalcoinresearch.com. And uh, we're very accessible. So definitely folks reach out if you have any questions or thoughts. i love to hear from everyone all over the world. We're, you know, global inherently. So love to hear from anyone and everyone in Asia or elsewhere. I will recommend Global Coin Research for those who wants to learn more about the crypto space and what are the nuances going on in the industry. You can Google me at Bernard Leong. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Himalaya. And please subscribe to us on Himalaya because we are trying to get more followers so that I can actually get an account later to maybe you can start gifting to me. You can also drop me some feedback, give us a five star on iTunes. And of course, most importantly, tweet to us at Analyze Asia. So once again, Joyce, many thanks for coming on the show and let's continue talking. Thank you. Thanks for having me again.